This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is October 12, 2023. Back in August, we introduced you to MSCI's head of research, Ashley Lester. Today, we introduce you to a new quarterly feature on Perspectives, our Investment Trends in Focus Roundtable looks at the markets like the patchwork quilt of unique but interwoven parts that it is. This quarter's discussion looks across developed and emerging markets across equities, fixed income, and real estate. And it is led by none other than Ashley Lester, whom we turn to now. Thank you, Adam. These are tumultuous times in markets, and so we will commence our in-focus discussion without further ado. Last quarter, the big news of the quarter was the increase in interest rates, particularly in the United States. And over the weekend, we were all shocked by the news of war in Israel and the Gaza Strip. Last time there was a similarly significant military incursion into Israel was the Yom Kippur War, which started almost exactly 50 years ago today, and which in some ways lay behind the infamous inflationary shocks of the 1970s. So with interest rates heading north and war in the Middle East, are we headed for a repeat of the 1970s? Is stagflation just around the corner? Thomas, perhaps I could ask you to start by providing some perspective on the increase in rates we saw last quarter. Thank you, Ashley. Um, so I'm, I'm Thomas Verbracken and part of the Solutions Research Group at MSCI. So policymakers have been increasingly signaling that they want to keep policy rates higher for longer. And the chief economist of the Bank of England actually made a nice uh, comparison, saying that he rather sees the interest rate path as the tabletop mountain instead of the Matterhorn, meaning he rather keeps rates at this level for longer um, than increasing further and then having to cut. We've seen markets uh, adjust to that. Um, it took a while, um, but now nowadays, um, implied expectations for the policy rates are aligned with what policymakers have been saying for longer, namely that uh, rate cuts are not to be expected before mid-2024. Um, and this uh, is true across uh, various regions. It's uh, true in the US, UK, and the Eurozone. But I think the, the more recent story, what we've seen in the, in the past week, is the surge in longer treasury rates. So we've seen a flattening in the yield curve, um, again, not only in the US, but also in the UK and, and the Eurozone. So that begs the question, what is driving that? Because monetary policy rates tend to affect the shorter end of the yield curve. Um, but now we've seen 10-year and 30-year uh, rates going up quite a bit as well. Now, what I want to mention is that the 10-year break-even inflation rate has remained relatively flat over the past week. So that means real rates have gone up. Um, and they're now actually at the 15-year high in the US, at a 12-year high in the Eurozone, and at a 13-year high in the, in the UK. Now, what could have driven that? According to the New York Fed's model, um, the US term premium has gone up recently. It's now in positive territory, which means that investors demand um, a premium for holding longer maturity uh, treasuries. And many factors could play a role um, but a few that come to mind are shifts in supply and demand of treasury bonds. U.S. treasury issuance is high given the fiscal deficits, quantitative tapering is going on, and foreign holdings of treasuries um, are declining. A more controversial take um, is that it could be related to uncertainty around solvency. Uh, we, we had the Fitch uh, downgrade in August, 
So you could argue that investors are increasingly worried um, about the US government missing a bond payment, um, although I must say it still seems unthinkable that uh, the US government would, uh, would default um, on its debt. So uh, we're not sure if that's really the, the reason for the surge in, in rates, in, in longer rates. And actually, I'm just going to say one last thing, and then I hand it back to you. Because um, if we focus on the really long end of the curve, um, the 30-year note, um, then we see that that one went up you know, slightly more than the 10-year uh, rate. And if we look at the break-even inflation curve, I was mentioning that 10-year break-even inflation rates have been relatively flat over the past weeks. But the gap between the 30-year and the 10-year break-even inflation rate has actually increased by about 20 basis points since mid-September. So this might be suggesting that in the much longer term, investors are pricing in longer uh, inflation than before, and that may play a role as well. What are we seeing in riskier assets and fixed income? Are we seeing IG or high-yield spreads move wider on the back of these moves? Um, it's actually interesting that if you look at credit markets, that the credit spreads are relatively flat. We haven't seen huge spikes there. Also, emerging market credit spreads um, seem relatively flat. One spread which I want to call out is the Italian sovereign spread over the German bond yield. Um, that one has gone up, and um, that one actually is also related to something happening last month, the, the fiscal deficits in, uh, in Italy, and the plans for more uh, government borrowing have made investors uh, a bit more nervous, and that has pushed up the Italian sovereign spread. But apart from that, um, I haven't spotted big moves in the, in the credit markets. So there aren't huge moves in the riskier parts of fixed income markets. On the other hand, in equity markets, we saw a decline overall in most equity markets last quarter. Of course, in the benign correlation environment that we've all got used to over the last 10 or 15 years, we would typically see equity markets do well in the context of bond market falls. But that wasn't the case last quarter. Just how unusual is that? And what are some of the implications of what we're seeing for equity markets? Anil, can I uh, bring you in on this topic, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Anil Rao. I'm part of the equity research team here at MSCI. So yeah, just to kind of level set, how did equity markets kind of perform throughout this year? And I think you mentioned actually last quarter's decline. So just as a sense of scale, um, I looked at this morning kind of year to date major market returns. So the U.S. is up around 14%. The growth segment of the U.S. market's up around 30%. U.S. value stocks decline around 2% loss. Surprisingly, Europe and Japan this year have actually rebounded quite a bit from last year. So they're up 6-7%. Kind of um, lagging the pack are Australian equities that are down um, 3 or 4% this year. You mentioned at the outset, Ashley, you know, this moment compared to the 1970s. One of the things that I like to look at is just how unusual is this moment. And one way that I think about this, or one way of thinking about the kind of stretched valuations and just the kind of run-up in stocks this year is this growth-to-value premium. That is, how much more are investors paying for a dollar of a firm that's growing its earnings versus, let's say, a value firm, right? That spread today, or that premium, is matching levels from the 1970s. So that is, investors today are paying almost 150% more for a dollar of growth earnings versus value, right? So historically that spreads around 50%. So 
That's interesting because that's at a peak and there's an interest rate component to that, as you mentioned. But I think more interesting is just as we dial back in time, we look at that spread, that's matching levels from the 1970s, in fact, from the late 1970s. And I think investors are starting to price in a risk of reversal there. As you mentioned, over the last three months, most of the major equity markets around the world have actually come off a bit, three to five percent. If I, That's fascinating. Uh, sorry, go on, Thomas. Yeah, if I can maybe um, weigh in on this, I'd like to maybe zoom out a little bit to the, the multi-asset class perspective, because I think that the bond equity correlation is indeed something that investors are very often uh, looking at because of its importance you know, for diversification in portfolios. Like we were used to the regime where when equity sold off, bonds uh, gave that cushion. And, and that was basically true in, uh, you know, from 2000 to, um, I think, 2021, um, when the economy was mostly driven by demand shocks. Um, but it hasn't always been like that. And we can go back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, when the bond equity correlation was positive. Actually, if you look at, at the bond equity correlation you know, over time, um, then we see that recently in 2021, it again has moved into positive territory. So um, that has important implications for this diversification role, um, especially if we think about the traditional 60-40 portfolio. Last year, for example, that, that portfolio took a really hard hit because last year was really bad for bonds and for equities. And I think the question is, if we go back to a regime which is more similar to what we saw in the 70s, 80s, 90s, Will that have implications for the 60-40 portfolio and for the role of uh, bonds as a diversifier? That's a great lead into another line of inquiry, which is that if a, a liquid 60-40 portfolio may not fulfill the diversification role that it has over recent decades, are there other places to look? And Jim, I might bring you in at this point, given your expertise in asset classes aside from liquid bonds and equities. Hi, yeah, I'm Jim Costello. I'm with uh, the Real Assets Research Team. I'm based out of New York uh, and a suitcase from time to time. I am listening to these guys and thinking about you know, what is going on today versus the, the past in the 70s. This is a topic that I've been addressing in my, t in my presentations to clients. There are things that rhyme in every downturn. And I think sometimes investors get caught up in the things that rhyme and, and just look at analogies to previous periods and thinking everything from a worst case in a previous uh, down cycle will happen again and that the investment opportunities will be the same. But there are different initial drivers in every one of those downturns. So you got to look below the headline figures. That's a fancy way of saying this time it's different. You know, the inflation trends of the 70s, we had other things driving them that weren't in place today. You know, this inflation trend in the last couple of years I look at it as really just a function of the aftershocks of the COVID crisis. When you shut down the global economy and have everybody stay on their couch for months at a time, you're going to have some shocks afterwards. The inflation shock that happened first was an energy shock. If you take all the CPI stuff and you look below the numbers, you start disaggregating what's driving CPI. The first thing that was really driving it was an energy shock. Nobody was driving in the office that we weren't driving around. You didn't have as much energy demand. And so uh, for oil firms stopped drilling. It's not like turn on the tap of water where you just turn it back on when you need it again. The Baker Hughes numbers show that they stopped drilling uh, uh, for, for new oil wells. It took time for that investment to ramp back up to get more energy delivered into the economy. 
we saw a housing shock. That's one third of the CPI in the markets in North America and Canada in terms of how they calculate it. We had a record shutdown of housing construction. It zoomed back the other way. It's zigging and zagging back and forth like a rubber band. You have this initial shock and it just reverberates out in a series of decreasing waves over time. The housing shock we're still dealing with. That is a, uh, a huge component, that one third of the CPI. And it's growing at a faster pace because we have limits on how much supply is out there at a time when the demographics suggest there should be more demand. This is all different than the 70s when you had you know, an energy shock that was not something that was going to be dealt with with more investment. That was a political issue. And then you also had this uh, contract issue with uh, the, the labor markets and, and how firms had to continually push uh, uh, price increases along different sets of situations. And I think it just has different implications for how people invest and how they should be thinking about the future. Still, Jim, as you said, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And uh, on one level, the rhymes start to get a bit almost uncanny, what with uh, the political sources of energy price shocks, the UAW strike in the States. There's definitely a, a strong sense of rhyme, which uh, perhaps is leading some investors at least to get a bit anxious here. How's that playing out in the commercial real estate market, especially given the sort of very key point you made that much of what we're seeing today is the aftershocks and the reverberations of the pandemic? The commercial real estate markets are slower moving than the other asset classes. You know, when I talk about what's happening in real estate, sometimes these guys, they snicker a bit because uh, I could talk about prices last quarter. They could talk by the minute. It's a different asset class. The uh, property prices were down six and a half percent globally in the second quarter of 2023. I mean, again, we're in, in October. We're talking about this. This is the most recent read we have. Uh, and investment returns are down, but they're a bit lagging. You know, the, the fundamental demand is still facing challenges and investors are slowly coming around to where they need to be to have the market clear. The market's not clearing. It's we're at a reduced level of activity. Potential buyers are looking at assets and thinking, I don't want to go in at the current prices because of all the negatives you pointed, Ashley, on the UAW strike, all the demand factors changing. Uh, if they're looking at an asset, they're thinking, I'll, I'll pay 30 cents on the dollar relative to what you paid it for it just to cover all the risks and all the uncertainty I'm taking on because I don't want to jump in and, and be the person everybody talks about five years from now who overpaid for an asset as opposed to current owners. It's not like in the stock market where they have to mark everything to market right away. As long as they're current on their loans, they could just sort of sit on the asset and wait and see what happens. And so you have this expectations gap. There's very little liquidity in, in many asset classes. There's some that are a little bit different. Some individual property types are a bit different. There's been more of a move towards industrial properties. Uh, think about warehouses. It's it's a cheaper asset to build you don't have to spend a lot to keep it current. You, know, you don't have to invest a lot to keep it going. And apartment buildings, because there's still a lot of demographic demand. And those two factors are sending investors a little bit more towards those two sectors compared to things that are dependent on the business cycle, like offices and convention center hotels. I wanted to pick up on two sort of themes that you mentioned, Jim, and ask Katendra to comment. One was on the lack of liquidity in real estate markets. Uh, Hitendra now is an expert in more liquid markets again, but I wonder what's happening to liquidity through all of this period. And the other is you mentioned sort of things zigging and zagging all over the place. 
What's happening to market perceptions of volatility as we go through this series of shocks and this unusual set of correlations between interest rates and equities? So I'm Hitendra Vasani. I'm part of MSCI's Global Solutions Research Team based in London. One of the challenges for asset allocators is the fail of diversification. So when I was at school, one of the one of the free lunches in finance was uh, diversification, and and that's evaporated not just last year but this year as well. So not just from an equity bond perspective, but also within equities as well. We saw in the first half of the year the most concentrated rally we've seen for 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 many many years, led by the Magnificent Seven and artificial intelligence. Hey, Adam here. Just a quick refresher. The Magnificent Seven are, well, seven mega-cap stocks, including AI-driven NVIDIA. And these stocks have driven equity performance for a lot of the year. You can read more about it by heading over to MSCI.com. Anyway, let's get back to the panel. And at that time, active managers were finding it very challenging to beat their benchmarks if they were not exposed to those names. But that's changed in the last three months. Um, we've now seen factor premiums come back. So whether it be value, whether it be yield or low vol, quality, and even growth, all across the board, besides small caps, factor premiums are back. And so for long horizon investors, maybe diversification remains to be the free lunch in finance. That's to be seen. When we think about equities versus bonds, as Thomas has highlighted, and Nils has highlighted, and Jim as well, um, yields are up. And when yields are up, that puts pressure on equities. One, because valuations are discounted by long-term rates. Two, uh, the cost of financing goes up. And so companies have to re-engineer their balance sheets to adjust to a new environment. But thirdly, from an asset allocation point of view, equities are expected to deliver a higher return compared to bonds, right? And if that hurdle goes up, that makes it more challenging for equities. So we highlighted in a note a few weeks ago how Unusually, valuations were high, market volatility was low, interest rates are rising, the cost of buying protection in the derivatives market was really low. It almost felt like there was a dislocation. It felt like there was complacency in the market. And fast forward, what we've seen, given the continued stress in the bond market, is now volatility has started to rise. The VIX curve is inverted for the first time in several months. Um, and so Despite us still being in a relatively low volatility environment, we could see hedging activity return given the declines in bonds and equities that we've seen in recent weeks. For those of us who were around in 2008 and perhaps some of the other crises, it wouldn't be the first time that we'd seen equity markets apparently lagging some of the anxieties that were being felt in fixed income markets. You mentioned that value has started to outperform, albeit in a context which, as Anil highlighted, is from a, an astonishingly low base. Value has had a pretty terrible 15 years or so. And over recent years, it's come to be seen as, as pretty much a, a short duration play. Do you think that that's behind the recent rally in value? And do you think that type of trend will continue to play out? Or do you not really buy into the idea that value over any sort of longer run is actually short duration? So when we think about what's driving markets, we, we, we refer to our global equity factor model because that's a place where you can isolate trends in equity markets. Since the reopening of economies post-COVID and the rise of rates, the pure value factor performance has actually done remarkably well and has continued to do well throughout this year. 
Now, hearing Anil's comments about how well growth style has done versus value style, that may puzzle some investors. The USA value has outperformed USA growth by 35%, but the pure factor in value has actually done well year to date. And that has actually outperformed growth. So when we think about value as a factor, it's value within picking stocks, removing all other side effects. But the style indexes actually have very significant sector biases. And given the concentration of, of the rally we've seen in the Magnificent Seven, in the technology sector, in the mega cap space, that has overshadowed the value premium. And so the value premium has been there in this raising right cycle, but it's just become more evident now we've seen the tech sell-off in the recent weeks. If I could just add one comment to that, Hitendra, um, value is particularly interesting to me right now. One narrative that we hold on to is that cheap stocks perhaps are in structural decline, maybe they're saddled with debt, or they're in low growth or no growth in markets. But in fact, if we look at the last decade, um, value stocks in the U.S., outside the U.S., and even in emerging markets, have actually had robust top-line sales growth and margin expansion. So what gives? Right? Why are they laggards? And the answer is their valuations have barely budged in almost a decade. So we have a landscape now going into 2024 where value stocks are actually quite profitable, yet they're cheaper than they were in 2014. If value is actually doing well as a factor, and yet the Magnificent Seven, which I don't think anyone would argue are priced as value stock, continue to outperform, what is it that makes the Magnificent Seven so special? So when we look at the value factor performance and it being positive over the course of the year, that's across an entire broad universe of stock. Now, when we look at Magnificent Seven, by definition, that's only seven mega cap stocks. And given those, the weight of those stocks and those indexes, you could, in some sense, think of them as a factor in themselves. They represent over 26% of the U.S. market cap. And they're actually larger than the small cap index all put together. So when we look at long only performance, we're not in a long short world. You have your portfolio, you have your reference benchmark, you try to outperform your reference benchmark. But if the benchmark itself is highly concentrated, that doesn't allow the investor to express the fact of you more efficiently because if they underweight those Magnificent Seven, they get whipsawed by that performance. And so the challenge for factor investors now is how can you outperform a benchmark that's highly concentrated? And I think that's a big investment challenge. Anil, did you have any thoughts? Yeah. Um, let me start by looking back where we were just a year ago, right? If we were to dial back in our time machine, tech stocks and growth stocks were largely giving back a large part of their COVID era gains. Value stocks, long dormant that we just talked about, long dormant over the preceding decade, were actually faring quite well. And then November 30th, 2022 happens. And that's the day that ChatGPT is released. And I think it's actually going to go down as one of these seminal moments if you look at the day the vaccine is announced, um, November 9th, 2020. I think this day you can almost do many event studies on because initially, slowly, and then all of a sudden, investors start resetting their expectations. 
of who the winners will be from this seemingly alien technology. So my colleague, George Bonet, has actually built a very useful tool, um, and it's a crowding model. And that allows us to essentially people watch in real time. And into December last year, and then all throughout 2023, as Hitendra mentioned, we can watch certain stocks, certain industries, say semiconductors, media and entertainment, and certain themes, say robotics or autonomous industries. We can watch them get more crowded. Valuations are bid up, short interest spikes, momentum surges, sentiment surges. So where does that leave us now? In the U.S., at least, um, those stocks, those handful of stocks that have accounted for the bulk, maybe 50% of the overall return, right? Assessed globally, Tandra mentioned those stocks now make up over 20% of the market capitalization. We started out, um, Ashley, you mentioned at the start here, you know, where how does this moment that we're in feel like compared to previous moments? We have to go back almost 50 years to find a similar level of concentration back to the late 1970s when U.S. industrial blue chips reigned supreme, like Eastman Kodak or Standard Oil. So what do we know about history? What tends to happen after periods of market concentration or elevated concentration, we found that more often than not, those leaders struggle to keep pace with the rest of the market. And that, to me, is actually fascinating, right? That sometimes that reversion is very sudden. Think of lucent technologies and then the early 2000s, or sometimes it's very gradual, like Japanese banks in the 1990s. And to me, that's fascinating because that's just part of creative destruction. Incumbent firms are challenged from these upstarts, and they struggle to keep up with the market once they've reached the top. But related, that concentration is crowding. Um, and they're not the same. You know, one is a measure of an overall index. The other is a stock level measure. But right now, there are some signs that those largest stocks, the AI winners, so to speak, are at elevated levels of crowding. So on the point of crowding, I think um, when you look at AI stocks in particular, they're based on forward expectations. They're imagining a world that could be, but hasn't been realized. And investors put a premium on those stocks. Now, the question is, which of those stocks are going to remain profitable? Are they going to realize that earnings growth going forward? What we've looked at recently is, can you think about crowding in combination with fundamental metrics like quality? And there you see a complete distinction. You can see herding around crowded stocks that have strong balance sheets, that are profitable, that have low earnings variability, and maybe their valuations are justified to be seen. But then there is another camp of stocks that are crowded that may not be profitable, that have terrible earnings trajectories. And so the question is, which of those camps is more at risk? Our evidence shows that highly crowded stocks that have low quality have systematically underperformed the broader market over the long run, whereas low crowded stocks with high quality have outperformed over the long run. I was going to say, I find the discussion on sort of the industry concentrations fascinating because it has an implication in the real world, just in the space markets and where people live in different cities. Because when you're thinking about the concentration of different industries, certain cities are one horse towns. If you think about auto manufacturing, there's certain cities that that's concentrated in. There's big rust belts in the UK and the US where former industrial towns that economic demand fell apart. And so then the need for the real estate fell apart later. That's all real estate is. It's just a box where the economy lives. And if the stocks and everything tied to a particular industry 
are growing, there's more demand. If it's falling, there's less. And that's that's been fascinating because we had this run up then from the 1980s till recently in the financial sector markets. There were two markets in the real estate world globally, central London and Manhattan and everything else. And that's fallen apart. Uh, you now have uh, a much more diverse set of markets popping to the top of investors' preference lists. All this investment in vaccines and the biotech, that's driven uh, investment in places like Cambridge and Cambridge. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's these areas where smart people uh, getting together. You, know, you can't work remotely doing biotech unless you're like in Breaking Bad or something. You know, it's something that you need to be in lab space. And there's been tremendous investor interest and going into so that medical life and uh, all the lab science kind of stuff. Uh, and the traditional office is people moving away from that. And it kind of fits everything you're talking about on that change in the uh, investor landscape for the performance of the firms. You look at the performance of the firms and the types of things that are growing, you know, there is a real estate analog that goes with it. So, Jim, that's absolutely fascinating because on the one hand, what we're hearing from Hitendra and Anil is about this incredible concentration of modern capitalism in just a handful of, of mega firms. But what you're telling us is that maybe the geographic concentration of post-pandemic capitalism can actually be more spread out than we've seen over the last 40 years or so, where the vast majority of the gains arguably went to just a few of the largest and most cosmopolitan cities. Is that right? It is changing. And part of it, too, is just the nature of the firms. If you have these high-tech firms, their their labor base is a little bit more dispersed. They're trying to find coders and smart people. They're not all in one city. You know, it used to be, yeah, they'd, they'd hire people, bring them into Silicon Valley, uh, but that was just too much of a concentration. It's easier in some cases just open a campus in Vancouver or Mumbai or uh, any place else where there's a concentration of smart folks and uh, let them collaborate a little bit remotely. So it's a little bit the technology hitting the, the real estate markets and you know, allowing firms to disperse their activities to some degree. Some sense, so we've seen that for a very, very long time. Uh, there's some evidence showing that back in the 1950s, half of uh, the U.S. financial sector, for instance, was on the island of Manhattan. And then the introduction of high-tech tools like fax machines, long-distance phone calling, allowed them to disperse and send lower-value-add activity to uh, remote areas where labor costs were lower. But now it's just hitting the more the knowledge sector workers as well. Not to be lost on this are markets outside U.S. equities. If we look outside U.S. large caps, my colleague Sora Katiara has looked at this recently. Um, small cap stocks tend to be much less concentrated and as are international developed, as I mentioned. Um, but emerging market stocks, we might think of that as like maybe a safe haven from concentration, they're actually at similar levels of U.S. concentration. So think there of Taiwan being dominated, kind of top-heavy by TSMC, Korea by Samsung, China by its tech giants. The one area or the one geographic region, I could say, that maybe doesn't suffer the effects of concentration right now are you know international developed world ex-U.S. stocks, so Europe and Japan. Yeah, it's staying with the concentration. So it's not only the multi-asset, allocator that's looking for more diversification or the global investor that's looking at the geographic allocation, but companies themselves are looking to 
diversify their supply chains. So we've learned from COVID that if you over rely on a certain supply chain and that breaks, that's a business risk. And so we're now seeing assets being repriced to reflect that diversification need in supply chains. So whether it be looking at emerging markets like China or the China Plus One, thinking about rewiring of the economy into India, Taiwan, Indonesia, Mexico, how, how do you actually assess that? Well, we look at economic revenue exposure and track that through time to see how that rewiring of the economy is actually taking place. And Hitendra, that, that has a, an analog again in on the ground. My colleagues in North America do an industrial development and leasing. They talk about how in Mexico they're seeing more activity now than they have for years. People trying to build uh, infrastructure there that uh, maybe you know, seven or ten years ago would have gone to China. Well, that's the other sort of paradox that is underlying our conversation, right? Because on the one hand, we're talking about further globalizing forces. But of course, on the other, some of the geopolitical tensions which have manifested themselves over recent years have led to the rise of concepts like friendshoring or nearshoring or pulling back on these types of ideas. Can we map the effects of that through in any stock market action that we see? But then also, I look to bring you back, Thomas, on the fixed income side as well. But stock markets first. One way that I've thought about this, um, and I'll take a stab at this, is within the emerging markets, um, I think of almost three groups that are forming, domestic Chinese shares, offshore Chinese firms, and then the rest, which is EMX China. And if we were to look at just to say the past five years through the COVID era, A shares, those domestic shares, they've grown sales, they've had some multiple expansion, offshore shares. Um, have had actually margin compression, sales decline, valuation compression. It's been that third piece, emerging markets ex-China, that have really had hit the trifecta. And largely due to what Pete Hendra mentioned, this kind of rewiring of supply chains. So they've had earning expansion, multiple expansion. Really, the only drag on their returns was from currency, from the perspective of a dollar investor. Traditionally, when... when there were signs of stress in fixed income markets in the developed world. Those signs of stress would be amplified and magnified in emerging markets. Are we seeing similar developments, for instance, over the last quarter in emerging markets, or are they proving resilient to the rising rates that we're seeing in places like the US? I can comment here. So um, we've seen very strong dollar strength uh, year to date, which means we've seen emerging market currency weakness uh, against the dollar. And that's an overhang for emerging market equities because import prices have gone up. We've seen oil prices go up. We've seen more restrictive stance from the Middle East on oil. So all of this is adding to inflation pressures in emerging markets. And so emerging market central banks are having to increase rates to attract foreign inflows, given the high rates we've seen in more safer haven markets like the U.S., that overhang has actually led to a significant valuation discount across many single countries in emerging markets. There's a few exceptions here, like Taiwan and India, given their domestic growth story. But if you look at the rest of the emerging markets, we're seeing very low valuations from a historical context. And so, again, it comes back to what is my allocation? How much am I exposed to that? And how can I find ways to diversify away from those risk factors? So we're going back to portfolio 101 almost in thinking, how do I rebuild my portfolio to be more resilient, more diversified 
and tap into alternative return sources, maybe perhaps beyond public markets, going into private markets. Which is interesting, right? Because we're seeing a big run up in rates. As Thomas mentioned, we haven't seen a big increase in spreads. So there's not necessarily at this stage much sign that investors are pricing in a lot of distress in assets over the near term. But at the same time, we're seeing significant falls in many, many parts of the commercial real estate market. We're seeing what would certainly be associated traditionally with financial distress in emerging markets. And we're seeing an absolute tidal wave of floating rate credit being sent into the way of smaller companies through private credit and direct lending by associated companies. So this sets us up for a very interesting, I would say, 12 to 24 months in the future, particularly perhaps as borrowers start to face those increasing rates if they're on floating rate loans, or if they start to face some resets if they're on fixed rate loans. Jim, do we have any information about any of that sort of prospect for the commercial real estate sector? You know, it is, I think, the biggest investment theme that people are focusing on in commercial real estate right now. There is an interest to move into real estate in that, not in the sense that you know they see tremendous economic growth. It's more the financial aspects because everything has not been repriced yet. There's the thought that be, when distress hits on the debt side, maybe I'll be able to pick it up for 30 cents on the dollar and be able to uh, generate some returns that way. Uh, the markets are really opaque for commercial real estate. The data is just not as good <laughs> compared to other asset classes. And then on the debt side of the equation, it's even worse. But in the United States, we do have information there. And it's it's looking like in the next two years, we think there's $1.5 trillion coming due on commercial property debt. A lot of it is short-term debt originated in 2021 and 2022 at excessively low rates. And investors are trying to target which properties are there that are where it's someone ahead of their skis. Do the investors need help or is it something that I can step in and provide some rescue capital, maybe take control of the asset myself? Now, even globally, some of the same issues exist. Different debt markets globally, different types of approaches to debt. Uh, but anything bought in 2021 and 2022 when rates were low and people were getting a little bit aggressive, people are kicking the tires on those assets as well. It often happens that when when yields move, that something breaks, right? We've, we've seen a couple of examples, like, I mean, the, the regional U.S. banks crisis, like, we're not sure that that's fully over yet. And the other example, um, last year in, in, in the U.K., the LDI pension fund crisis, where a, a move in, in yields, then, you know, the combination of leverage, crowding, and, and some liquidity constraints had this negative feedback loop. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if, you know, more of those events will, will happen. Um, some people are concerned about the bets that hedge funds are taking in the U.S. Treasury market. You know, these basis trades where also huge amounts of leverage are being used. Um, if, you know, if there something similar happens where there's this negative feedback loop would also lead to, you know, quickly unwinding, selling treasuries, where treasuries are probably a lot more important for the financial system um, than the guild markets, like given their massive size. Those type of events might also happen. I, I hope not, but I think that's also something to look out for. I would also just add that um, I, I feel like we're in an era of mixed signals right now. Um, you know, earnings forecasts are still pretty bullish. Um, analysts, of course, are kind of 
historically known to be quite optimistic. Um, but there, there's positive earnings forecasts for the U.S., Europe, Japan, Korea, India, Taiwan. So earnings analysts haven't really um, reset their expectations based on rates yet. Well, so bullish earnings, big basis trades are on uh, on government bonds. It's about a quarter of a century since we last saw something exciting happen as a result of those types of trades. I guess uh, we'll find out what happens in the next three months. And we'll look forward to getting some of you back with us in three months' time and hopefully having our listeners rejoin us then and, uh, and we can review what's played out over the fourth quarter. Thank you, everyone. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe and me to Ashley, Thomas, Anil, Jim, and Hatendra, and to all of you for listening. You'll find more resources to help put this quarter in focus using the links at the bottom of the episode page at MSCI.com. Next up on the program, we dig deeper into the real estate story that Jim Costello introduced, specifically on the topic of lending. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.